last week, Chris talked about Christmas. Okay, I can see it again. I can see all of this. Oh, not again. He's not talking about Christmas again, is he? Chris really helped us think through some of the values around Christmas. It was important that we did it last week because if we don't think about this stuff soon enough, then Christmas is going to be upon us and we're not going to have been able to be as intentional as we'd like to be. I thought his talk was really thought-provoking and uh, if you missed it, it's really worth catching up with on the, on the website. He encouraged us and challenged us to be really intentional about thinking through our values as we prepare for Christmas. What is it that's important to us at Christmas? If you remember, Chris said, you know, the kind of standard, the standard sort of world's value around Christmas seems to be consumerism and consumption. Actually, Chris showed that uh, most people in their heart of hearts know that Christmas is more than that. Most people will, are happy to admit that that isn't really the main point of Christmas. What most people are, seem to hold as their highest guiding value around Christmas is what? Can you remember what he said? It's family. And he showed us that clip from Home Alone. Do you remember? Okay. He said, actually, most people know that Christmas really isn't about consumerism, but for most people, their highest value is family. And family is important at Christmas, but, but Chris reminded us, actually, the most important thing about Christmas is Jesus. And he encouraged us to make sure that we worship fully, keeping Jesus at the centre of this season. You know, there's Advent text alerts, that's what that's all about. He encouraged us to think about how we spend less on unwanted gifts and make sure that the gifts we do spend on are meaningful and focused. Or maybe even we can make gifts and we can use the money that we've saved to help others, to bring hope to others. He also encourages us to think about including others in our Christmas season and, by, and also inviting people to party with us. I don't know how it is for you. I'm pretty good at inviting people to come to my house for something. I'm fairly good at inviting people to a community event. I'm not sure that I'm massively confident to say to somebody, hey, would you like to come to my church? I don't know how you are about that. I find that quite tricky. I still try. I still make a... You know, and that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning. That's what the King's Christmas is about. It's about basically saying Christmas is about the King. Christmas is about Jesus. Actually, Christmas is an incredible time for Christians. It's the time when we celebrate the ultimate moment of supernatural breakthrough. The ultimate encounter of our world with its maker. The point, when his, the point in history when Jesus came to the earth. Sometimes we use the word Emmanuel because it, mean, it means God is with us. And Christmas is the time when we remember that more than any other time in the year. I mean, Easter's important too, very important. But in terms of our world, probably Christmas is the time when the story of Jesus is most at the forefront of people's minds. I don't know if you've noticed this, but at Christmas, people who have no desire to come to church the rest of the year, who never really consider the teachings or values of Jesus as something that's important for their everyday lives, those people at Christmas are happy to come and sing songs of worship and adoration to God. Have you noticed that? Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ the King. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. I mean, everybody knows those songs and everybody's happy to sing them at Christmas. Whenever I sing that song, Oh, Come Let Us Adore Him, by the way, I don't know about you, but I, I find myself singing it as a prayer, as a prophetic prayer. I find that I'm not singing it to myself. I'm not even singing it to the people I'm with. I'm generally singing it to the communities and, and the people out there. Come let us adore him. Come let us adore him. 
So this is a time more than any other time in the year when people who don't know Jesus can come and get close to him quite easily. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. This is a season where those who might consider themselves religious outsiders can quite easily come in. See, there are plenty of people around who have no faith or who have consciously rejected faith or who are hurt or sick or broken or cynical or disinterested. There are those who would not normally ever come near a church. And yet this is a season when they could come and get up close personal to Jesus. And by the way, if you're here today and you would place yourself in that category, then first of all, you are so welcome here. Whatever your background, whatever your belief, you are welcome here any time. I hope this talk is helpful for you and I would love to chat more after the service. And more than that, I'd love you to keep listening because I've got really good news for you. The truth is there are plenty of people who are interested in God but have been put off by the experiences of church or even of Christians. That's just the, the reality of it. In many cases, the church throughout history has put so much cultural baggage in their way that they don't even manage to get close to Jesus and experience him for themselves. You read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and it's clear that the unchurched and the poor and the sick and the unbelieving and the unreligious and the cynical, all of them, they all flocked to hear him teach. Proportionately, Jesus spent most of his time with those people, the unreligious people. Those who were otherwise labelled by, they were labelled by others as sinners. It was those who felt most comfortable around Jesus. They invited him to their houses. They didn't feel judged. They didn't feel neglected. They didn't feel left out. They enjoyed being in his presence. And whether or not their lives were ultimately transformed, they had memorable encounters with Jesus. He was easy to be with. And today, the closest that anyone can get to the physical body of Jesus on this earth is what? It's us, the church. The church is the body of Jesus. The church is the body of Christ. We are his hands and his feet. So therefore, people who want to get close to Jesus have to come get close to us. That's how it goes. I wonder how easy it is. I wonder how easy we make it for them. The church is the we're committed, to, we're committed to being the kind of place where that can happen. The church is the only organisation that exists for the benefit of its non-members. And I really believe that's true because Jesus is more concerned about the outsider than he is about the insider. He's more concerned about the lost person than the found person. He's more concerned about the unbeliever than the believer. He deliberately went and hung out with those kind of people. He's really comfortable around people who don't know him. And we want to be the kind of place where we help people to meet with Jesus. That's true all the time. And it's especially true at Christmas. Where's that in the Bible, I hear you ask? Well, it's right here. If you've got a Bible, look at Luke 15. These are three very well-known parables. If, you've got, if you don't have a Bible, we have some at the back, or you might have it on your phone, or your... I don't have the text up here. Um, but they're fairly well-known stories. You've probably heard them quite a few times before. They're connected stories, three little stories. The, fir- the third one of which is probably the most famous. It's called the prodigal son. And maybe you've read these before a hundred times, but I want you to listen again this morning with fresh ears. And I particularly want, you, want us to hear the context in which these stories are set. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read um, bits and bobs from Luke 15. We're going to start with the first couple of verses. Um, keep your Bible open. And we're going to just comment on these stories. So Luke 15 and verse 1 and 2 says, Now the tax collectors... 
and the sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. So again, the tax collectors and sinners were the ones who were gathered around. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Let's stop there a minute. So Jesus is talking to tax collectors and sinners. These are the kind of people who want to hang out with him. I don't know if you know this, but in that culture, tax collectors were really, really not popular people. I mean, they're not particularly popular people now, are they? But I'm not sure that they're social outcasts. Tax collectors basically sold out to the authorities in order to make more money for themselves. They were corrupt, they were dodgy, and they were, people were not interested in being with them. And yet those guys were flocking to hear Jesus. Not just to hear him, he was eating with them. That's what the Pharisees were moaning about. You know, when you eat with somebody, it basically means you're welcoming them into your extended family. You're welcoming them into your community. The Pharisees would never have done this because that person, they would see that person as unclean. And so if you welcomed somebody who was unclean like that into your family, that made you unclean. Jesus was constantly hanging out with these kinds of people. They loved hearing his stories. They could see his authenticity. Even though they were not like him, they liked him. And in verse 2, these religious types are moaning, why won't this man, this Jesus, who claims to be holy and righteous, why won't he come hang out with us? We're the holy and righteous people. Why won't he come and hang out with us? And probably even more frustrating to them, why are those sinners so comfortable hanging out with him when they won't come and hang out with us? They're not comfortable with us. They just couldn't get their heads around Jesus at all. And it's in this context, and in answer to those questions, that Jesus tells these three stories about the nature of God and where it is that God's focus and his heart really lies. So verse 3, Jesus tells them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 out in open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home and calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you, in that same way, Jesus says, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. See, in this first story, the focus, where's the focus of the story? Is it on the 99 found sheep? No, the focus is on the one lost sheep, not the ones who are safe and well. Now, Jesus knew that his audience could relate to that. They knew that if you've lost something of value, what do you do? You go find it. This shepherd was very happy to leave the 99 and put all his effort and energy into finding the lost one. And interesting, when he did find it, he didn't scold it or punish it for getting lost. He joyfully carried it home, he says, and then he parted with his neighbours. Hey, come on, party, I found my lost sheep. That's not a party I think I'd like to go to, but you know, maybe it's a bit OTT. But it was a big deal. It was worth celebrating. And I guess the guys in that community could understand that and relate to it. Because, you know, in, that, in those times, sheep are valuable. This is business. This is commerce. This is your income you're talking about. You don't just give up on something that's valuable like that. That's why the illustration works. All the focus is on the sheep that was lost, not on the 99 that were safe and sound. I want you to notice this. It's important. 
And then Jesus tells a second story to follow it up. And I love this. It's so beautiful because the way he does this second story is that he's now embracing the women in the society there. And generally women were not embraced in that society. Generally they were pushed out of that society. And yet Jesus says, okay, I'll give you another example. He says, verse 8, suppose a woman has ten silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And then she, when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, hey, rejoice with me, I found my last coin. In the same way I tell you, there is more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And the point of this story is the same, even though the illustration is different. The ten silver coins clearly have a high value. They have a high financial value, but more than that, these probably represented the woman's dowry, a gift from her father for her future husband or for her husband. And they may well have been worn like a headdress. That's how they would wear these coins. And so if you had your dowry and that was your... It's a little bit... It's kind of like something similar to how we might wear an engagement ring. And you're not going to go out with nine out of your ten coins in red. It's not going to happen. So in that sense... When one is lost, Jesus says, if you've lost one of those things, in that sense, they're precious and they're valuable. And if you lose one, what are you going to do? Oh, well, never mind. I've got the other nine. No, 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 no. Jesus says, no, you're not going to do that. If you've lost one of those coins, you are going to basically turn the house upside down until you find it. She lights the lamp, she sweeps the house, and she searches until she finds it. And then again, she rejoices. How many of you have ever lost a ring or a piece of jewellery? And how many of you went straight home and got out all your other jewellery, all out on the bed and said, oh, it's okay, never mind that. Look what all I've got. Didn't do it, did you? Why not? Because that stuff's valuable. That stuff's valuable. You go after the thing that's lost. She's not here today, but I did check this with her. But Ali, in the summer, Ali Hyder, she posted this thing on Facebook, it's a bit hard to see, about how she lost her ring on the beach. I don't know how long you guys spent looking for it. Sometime, And then the next day, Andy went back and found the ring on the beach. That was an amazing story in itself. I don't have much jewellery. I have one ring. I just about managed to not lose that. I have three things that I keep with me all the time. Actually, funnily enough, two of them I have with me. They're my wallet and my uh, phone. My keys I normally have with me, but um, I lent them to my son to go upstairs and get something. Actually, funnily enough, I texted him before the service saying, just checking you've still got my keys. These things, to me, don't represent sentimental value. They don't particularly represent financial value, although there is a financial value to them. They represent, to me, time and energy, because I need these things to basically run my life. And if I were to lose one of them, it's just very, very inconvenient. It just costs time and energy and stress and hassle. And I could do without that, so pretty much every time I go out, I go, wallet, keys, phone. You know, if I've lost my wallet... I don't say, oh well, it's okay, I've got my phone and my keys. I'll be alright. You know, if, luckily my phone has a tracking device which makes it easier. I find myself crawling around the seat of my car sometimes, you know, underneath the seats. Anyone ever done that? Down the back of the sofa, you know. One time, a few years ago now, my dad was very incredibly generous and kind to us and he gave us some money to, um, to help buy a car. He gave us a cheque for about £2,000. And of course the cheque was in an envelope and it went on a pile of papers somewhere around the house and nothing really happened to it for about a week or two. 
And then it came to the time when I was thinking, right, I need to sort that check out, I need to put it in the bank, etc. Started to look, started to look, couldn't find it anywhere. Literally turned the house upside down, couldn't, couldn't find it anywhere. And at that point you go, oh my gosh, you know, I really, really didn't want to have to go back to my dad and say, you know that kind, generous check you gave me? I'm sorry, I lost it, can I have another one, please? I didn't want to have that conversation. And so I start to think, well, where's it gone, where's it gone? I'm talking to Joe and... and um, so when I think it was in that pile of papers, it, it, eventually we realised that, the, that they must have been thrown away. And this is in the time, by the way, before we all separated out our paper for recycling. So this is when everything was in the bin together. You know, I'm talking the food waste, you know, everything. So, oh my gosh, it's been thrown away. Okay, so do we still have the bin bags? Oh, well, we, we actually did still have the bin bags. So you know our next thing is, don't you? <laughs> So we get out some newspaper, we spread it over the kitchen floor and we literally get a couple of rubber gloves on and we, start, and we literally tip the bin bags right out over the floor and we're literally picking through every piece of rubbish. You know, the tins of tuna and... <laughs> you know, the eggshells and the milk bottles and all, all of that, you know. And uh, you want to know if I found it, don't you? I did find it. I found it in the rubbish. And then we had to sort of pack everything up again. The point is... And the point of Jesus' stories is that God's focus is on that which is lost and not on that which is found. I can imagine some people in the crowd listening to these stories and going, yeah, okay, Jesus, I get that. I, can, I get that. But I can't really relate to this. I mean, I'm not a sheep and I'm not a coin and I'm not lost. I mean, I'm here. I'm here with you. If you're, if you're claiming to be God, then I'm here with you. I'm not lost from God. Surely he knows everything. How can I be lost? And so Jesus goes on to tell this third story, the prodigal son story, and he does it to show how it's possible to be geographically present, but relationally lost. And so I'm going to summarise some of this story. It picks up in verse 11. Um, I will read some bits of it, but I just want to summarise the first bits. The youngest son in this family is a dad and his two sons, and the youngest son in this family, he's present in the family, he's geographically in the home, but clearly disconnected relationally from the father. He turns to his dad and basically says, Dad, I wish you were dead. And I want your stuff. Give me my half of the inheritance. Give it to me now. Now, when Jesus tells this story, this, this sort of thing would make his audience gasp. I mean, it's outrageous. It's culturally shocking, disrespectful. No decent Jewish father is going to let his son get away with behaviour like that. But in the story that Jesus tells, the father plays along. This guy must be crazy. You can see the audience. Why would he do that? Okay, the father says, let's pretend like I am dead. Just as you ask. Why don't we pretend that is true? Here's half your money. Here's half my money. There you go. Take it. It's yours. This father was so committed to connecting with the son relationally that he decided that the most gracious and loving thing to do was to go along with the plan. He knew that the physically where the son was, he was here, but he knew that the relationally there was a distance. This kid was lost. So the father says to himself, the only way to regain relationship with my son is to go along with his request and give him half of what I own. I mean, who would do that? Who would do that? It's utterly ridiculous. And now Jesus' audience are hanging on every word. Can you imagine it? He did what? Jesus got the meeting out of the palm of his hand. 
And so the son takes the money and he moves away and he parties and he makes some terrible decisions and he spends it all on dodgy people and dodgy stuff. And pretty soon the wild living stops and he runs out of money and he's got no one there to help him and he's basically in a right old mess. And then it gets even worse because the only job he can find is to work on a pig farm. You can imagine Jesus' Jewish audience just throwing up their hands in disgust. A pig farm! That's the worst of the worst. Until, Jesus says, the son comes to his senses and makes a decision and realises just what a dreadful mistake he's made and what a mess he's made of his life and how terribly and shockingly he's behaved and how he needs to do something about it. And I'm going to read from verse 17. It says, when when this son came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. And again, Jesus' audience are hanging on every word. What's going to happen? How is the father going to react? How is he going to respond? Surely now is the time for this father to give the son the kind of treatment or punishment that he deserves for his utterly shocking and disrespectful behaviour. But verse 20 carries on that while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to the son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Compassion. See, the, son, the father realised that the son was not just back geographically, he was back relationally. He was home, he was found. I'm pretty sure that the men in Jesus' audience would be cringing that this father would feel and act so compassionately and so graciously towards the son. But Jesus was just showing the heart of God the Father to anyone who's lost. And if you're here today and you don't know where you stand with God, I can tell you that he would love to have you back. That is the heart of the Father. You may even be here physically, but miles away, relationally. And we as a church here would love to help you reconnect with God the Father. We're absolutely sure that he wants to reconnect with you. He is searching for you. He is ready to throw a party. You will not find the angry judgmental God that some people talk about you will find the forgiving and gracious and compassionate father and verse 21 the son says father I've sinned against heaven I've sinned against you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son but the father says to the servants quick put the best robe on bring a finger and sandals and kill the calf and let's party let's have a barbecue let's celebrate the father he wasn't angry he wasn't angry who was angry the brother the older brother he was angry the father was just gracious and compassionate and the story goes on that the older brother stood outside basically refusing to come in saying how dare he do this he says he wouldn't come in and so the father went out of the party to plead with him by the way in that culture fathers never went out that, would, that wasn't the done thing everyone came into them The older brother says to the father, look, this is verse 29, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, I've never disobeyed your orders, and yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate. 
And yet this son of yours squanders your property with prostitutes, comes home, kills a fattened calf. You kill the fattened calf when you're partying. What does the father say to the older son? This is really important. He says, son, you are always with me. You are always with me. And everything I have is yours. Everything. But we had to celebrate. Can't you see we had to celebrate? And so those who are found, those who know the Father, those who've come to Jesus, he says to us today, again and again, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. Wonderful words of affirmation. But the focus of the Father is mainly not on those people. It's on the lost. Sure we're loved and sure we have access and ownership But Jesus spent most of his time with the unreligious people because that's where the focus of his concern was. So I have a couple of applications of this for us today. And the first one is for people who think that they might be lost. Sometimes we are lost and we actually don't know we're lost. How many of you have just carried on driving or walking somewhere thinking, I know where I am? And then you go, oh my gosh, I actually don't know where I am. It's possible to be lost and not know we're lost. But you know what? I want, to, I want to say this. There is no shame in being called lost by the Father because the things that you label as lost are the things that are most precious and most valuable to us. There's no point in calling something lost if, you don't, if you're not bothered about finding it. So maybe instead of thinking of ourselves as being lost, maybe we could think of ourselves as being precious or valuable or loved. The fact that God might call you lost means he thinks you're incredibly important and so valuable. And the things that we search for are the things that, we're val- that we consider valuable and what determines how valuable they are is how much effort we put into the search. Just exactly what are we prepared to sacrifice for it. And in our case, God gave his son Jesus. So he put the ultimate sacrifice in. If you, so don't be offended if you think that God says you're lost or thinks you're lost. It means you're so precious to him. It means that you are more his concern than all of the found people in this congregation or in our world. And if you've come to that place where you realise you're lost, if whatever's gone on, whether things have gone well or badly, you've come up empty, if you know you need help, your father cannot wait for you to turn your head in his direction. He can't wait. The thought of you reconnecting with him relationally brings so much joy to him and so much excitement to him that figuratively speaking, he will throw you a party that he's never going to throw me. I'm okay with that. And what about those of us who 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 think we're found? The question for us from this morning's talk is, Have we joined our Father in the search for lost people or are we gathering around the fire and just warming our hands while somebody else does the searching? Just imagine for a minute we're all on a camping trip and one of the children gets lost in the woods. Let's say it's one of my children. We haven't seen my little one for an hour now and I need you to help me find him. Everyone stands up. I go, right, I need you to go and... scatter and spread out in all directions and look for this kid he's this big and he looks like this and he's wearing this 
last seen over there. And there's a whole party of searchers saying, yeah, okay, we're ready. And so I go, come on then. And then they all go sit by the fire and wait for somebody else to do the searching. How am I going to feel in that situation? Or how are you going to feel if that's you? And how does the Lord feel in that situation? You know, if one of my children were to get lost when we're out and about, I don't just kind of hold on to the other one and hug him and say, never mind, I've got another one. (laughs) It's okay, I've got these two, they're fantastic, we'll just... I don't do that, do I? I don't do that. I want to quote, some of this material comes from a guy called Andy Stanley. I just want to read you something he said. He said, when groups of searchers, when groups of searchers quit searching, they may eventually feel the absence of the one who has called them searchers in the first place. This is challenging. Why should God show up here if no one else is actively engaged in the searching process? But when a group of searchers get serious about searching, God seems to show up in a tangible way. Those of us who are already found need to be careful that we don't get so comfortable hanging around with the other searchers that we forget to make time to help with the search. That's why we do church the way we do. Because we want to be the kind of place where anybody can come and connect with Jesus regardless of faith, background, culture, family, situation, gender, race, whatever. There are three responses to this this morning. Some of you just need to come and connect with Jesus relationally. And I'm going to give you a chance to do that in a minute. I'm going to pray a prayer and then we'd just love to chat to you. We'd love to help you reconnect with or connect for the first time with Jesus. Some of us, a few of us, are called to plant and lead groups and ministries and maybe even churches or services or gatherings that are intentionally aimed at helping lost people connect more with Jesus speaking to somebody this week about our evening service um, they said be great to do a service that connects with a certain this type of people or be great to do a service that really connects with a certain type of people I said yeah that's great you know we'd love to see that happen in the future I think God is going to raise up some people who want to do that you know maybe you're thinking the people I know live too far away from Winchester they wouldn't come to this place I'd like to do something either they're too geographically far or they're too culturally too far away from here I'd like to do something that helps them connect with God in in, in that way maybe it's in our local cafe maybe it's in our house I know that some of you have done that you've done groups in your house alpha courses and other things Um, and I think God wants to raise some of those people up as well but all of us have a a challenge for this morning and that's two quick words invest and invite all of us can do this it's a challenge to all of us. You know, if our social life and most of the people we hang out with revolve around the church and around Christian circles, then it's harder and harder to intentionally get involved with people who don't share the same values as us. That is a hard thing to do. It, it costs us something. But that's what we mean when we talk about being scattered servants, being engaged with the mission of God in the places where he's put us, actively investing in people and communities where we've been placed. You know, for me, I spend all my time with Christians 
My job is to be with Christians. And so I have to really intentionally, deliberately put myself into other places where I'm meeting people. I go out and do a city chaplain's role and I started a community choir. You know, and I just did it so that we could mix with regular people, so that we could go the extra mile and so that we could invite people to come and party with us and maybe come and meet with Jesus. There are loads of opportunities for all of us to do this. I've already mentioned this morning two specific challenges um, over the next season. You know, the, the, all of the Christmas stuff that we've just advertised and talked about. We've got loads of different events coming up. I mean, it's a very simple thing to take a Christmas fair flyer and say, hey, our church is doing something different this Sunday or next Sunday. So week, two weeks today. Our church is, we're not doing a service, we're doing a Christmas fair. Hey, come, it'll be great, bring your kids. We'll paint their faces and put them on donkeys and sing to them and tell them stories and get some food and hang out and buy some Christmas gifts get your photograph taken it'll be great people come into these Christmas fairs and they say wow the atmosphere here is incredible you know we've got other events coming up as well the market chalet in town get involved in that the carol service that we're going to do here in December I haven't really talked about that much yet but on the 11th of December there's going to be no morning service here just an evening carol service a guest service an invitation service come and sing carols Hear some stories. Hear a short talk about what it is to follow Jesus. That'd be amazing. Use the Christmas or the New Year season to plan a party for your neighbours. Invite them in for drinks. Hang out with them. And then the other thing, looking further, the evening service. Another great opportunity to invest and invite and make spaces where people can come connect with Jesus. There are loads of ways we could respond today. Why don't we stand together and I'll pray for us. And Paul, if you've got anything, why don't you come? You leave that picture up for me as well for a minute. So, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here with us today. Incredible, incredible Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we reflect on this story, the most gracious and compassionate Father, the one who's all his time and focus and energy is on those who haven't yet found him and who want to reconnect with him relationally. As we focus on that story, as we reflect on that incredible value, Holy Spirit, show us how we should respond ourselves. Show us how you want us to respond. How can we, how can we get in, in step with what you're doing? How can we be part of the search party how can we help people connect with this loving father how can we do that Holy Spirit come and even as I'm looking around the room I can see that different ones of us are really encountering God's presence some of us for the first time there are some of us here and and we just need to come to Jesus